should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. We're here every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, subject to change. <laughs> <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning with John Zipper, who's also with Commonwealth Club. John, thank you so much for, for having us and for making space for this incredible opportunity to bring thought leaders like our guests, whom we're going to inter, uh, introduce in just a little bit. Uh, but this has been so great. It's, it, we, we, we got through a full month's uh, worth of programming. Yes, We've started the year off uh, talking to candidates in the transgender community who are running for office. That was really great. Very awesome to hear so many people interested in running for office, m- making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, last year we had the music director from the Oakland Symphony, Michael week, Morgan, yeah. as well as Matthew Pajeko, a reporter for the Bay Area Reporter, mm-hmm. which it's incredible that a, an LGBTQ newspaper is still around after 40 some years. You know, and uh, and it hasn't yet been bought by Rupert Murdoch. So. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. exactly. Um, as mentioned before, this program here it's it's it, it's on site, meaning you can come and enjoy the program live. But we also tape the program to air later. So at four o'clock in the evening, we air it on Progressive Voices Network, and you can find all that information at michellemiao.com. So our guest today, we're going to explore LGBTQ history, and a lot of it is going to be information that may not have been out there. Um, I was telling John earlier, I think that a certain generation and younger may think that LGBTQ history started as uh, recent as marriage equality, (laughs) which is, you know, wrong, wrong. Or Stonewall. Or or Stonewall, right, Um, which there are a lot of uh, decades to explore. And then when a lot of people talk about LGBTQ history, we tend to kind of focus on names that, you know, are very important names. But, for example, many people only think about Harvey Milk. There are so many uh, people in our community we're complex, uh, we're, we're diverse uh, in sexual orientation and gender identity, and so I think there's a lot to cover. So we have historian Glenn McElhaney, who's here with us. Glenn, thank you for joining us here on this program. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and it's nice to be at the Commonwealth Club. So I always like to, you know, introduce our guests before we get into the program itself. And so since we're talking about history you, you, it's kind of perfect that we're going to ask you about your personal history. You know, where did you grow up? Uh, when did you know? And, and all, uh, all, all those good stories, the coming out stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm a local. I was born and raised in Oakland, so I'm not, I haven't come very far. Uh, my parents met on a blind date at UC Berkeley. 
So um, I'm a child of the of Berkeley in the pre, previous to the free speech movement, though long before then. Uh, and then when did I know? That's also a favorite question of mine, being an oral historian of LGBT folks. That's always one of the first questions that after they talk about themselves, too, is when did you know? And for me, when I was a kid, other than having a few crushes um, over the years, I had two major ones that I remember, even though before I knew. One was Olivia Hussey in Romeo and Juliet. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, my gosh. And then I also had a crush on Marcus Welby's daughter <laughs> on the Marcus Welby show. But I had no idea what that meant. So I didn't come out till I was 19 and fell in love with my uh, a friend of mine. And we ended up being together for a couple of years. So it was 19 is when I came out. And then I, as soon as I fell in love and acknowledged it, I immediately came out to my parents. Um, so, and the I, world. I have a quick question to follow up on that as far as, you know, falling in love. What was, it, what was it like to fall in love as an LGBTQ person in San Francisco, born and raised? I mean, we always hear about stories from places where, you know, we're transplants, where we escaped somewhere where we weren't necessarily, you know, um, accepted. So, you know, I wish it, it, it was still the, the uh, let's see, it was the early 70s for me. So it still wasn't that easy. And coming out to my parents, I think they did the the usual thing of blaming themselves and what did we do wrong and did we do something? And, you know, there, there was discussions about, you know, did my dad not show enough or did my mom not show enough? All that kind of sec- psychological stuff, none of which we all know as LGBT folks doesn't really matter. Um, we know it's something else inside of us, not what our parents did. So I had a lot of that. So it took a long time for them to come around. But in terms of being here and coming out in the early 70s, oh my gosh, it was so much fun. There was so much to do for women or for men uh, or all of the whole spectrum because there was very still by then already a starting bisexual movement. There were already people that freely cross-dressed both male and female and identified as transgender at the time, although there wasn't necessarily a word. And pre-AIDS, oh my God, the <laughs> the sex and the fun and the partying and everything, it was so much fun then. And around here, we were much more accepted uh, than other parts of the country. And even because, again, I do oral histories because my, my project is California-based in Los Angeles, it was a really different story down there coming out in the 70s because the difference between Los Angeles and San Francisco was huge, even all the way up until the 90s. It was a different experience, even though it's the same state. We could ask an hour's worth of questions just, just on, on that. that. So I, I do want to get back to that. But uh, sticking with you and your history, it, when did you know you were interested in history? Ah, <laughs> that's a good one, too, because my mom kept trying to interest me in history, and I wasn't at all for years. And she, I kept saying, oh, it doesn't matter, and I'm more relevant about now, and da 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 And she tried to get me interested in, in, in the area history, Bay Area history, wasn't interested. Um, and... I just she just could not engage me, which is too bad because I wished I kind of followed her lead on that because she was very interested in history. Um, I didn't come out uh, in terms of being an historian until I saw the film Paragraph One Seventy Five, an excellent film for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, that film really changed my life in terms of getting it that catching people's history before they passed on was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to be an oral historian. And I was in the process of going, looking at a second career. I'd already been in the automotive industry for 32 years. 
And I've been working on cars and selling tires and doing estimates at body shops for many, many years and loved it, um, but wanted to do something different. Um, so I saw that movie and I decided to become an oral historian. So let's get into it. The history of the LGBTQ flag and the reason why I uh, invited you here to talk about the LGBTQ flag is because you actually were the first person to address some rumors. I mean, they weren't big rumors at the, at the time, but of course, when founder Gilbert Baker passed away last year, it became discussion. It became a topic that a lot of people were talking about. But to hear it from an historian, a historian who actually uh, has, you know, some of the, if you want to call it evidence or, or factual, um, tangible items that that you could point to that tells us there were, in fact, other contributors, that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I think every person in the LGBTQ person or community is a contributor to our history right yeah, now, right? Very much so. So let's talk about... In 1978, when the LGBTQ flag was debuted, and and share with us what you know, because I know we have to be a little bit sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first off, uh, I need to admit that I'm coming at it um, from two perspectives. One is now as an historian, but number one is that I was there as a volunteer. Um, Yeah. I was a volunteer on the flags in terms of a volunteer for the decorations committee. Mm -hmm. So let me talk about the committee and the makeup of the 1978 uh, parade committee. So in those years, it was called the Gay Freedom Day Committee. So I'll call it the Gay Freedom Day Committee uh, because that's the context at the time. But now it's called San Francisco Pride. So it's the same organization, different bylaws and different people, but, but the same organization that puts on the parade. So for many years, the parade committee for about three or four had applied for city funding. And the city funding would be the hotel tax fund, now called Grants for the Arts. Mm -hmm. And for many years, the parade committee had said, hey, we're bringing tourists in. We deserve some of that money. And it had been denied. What was interesting is that about 1978, and again, the committee formed to, to get ready to get ready for the parade and to make sure that there, the road was closed, the porta potties were there, you know, that there was going to be a stage for speakers and microphones and, you know, a lineup for the parade, is they again applied for that city hotel tax funding. And that's a key to how, why the flags were made. There were two keys to why the flags were made. One was the, the financial aspect of finally in 1978, courtesy of Harvey Milk and George Moscone, pressuring the, the uh, CAO's office, the chief administrative office, to get some of that grants for the arts, now grants for the arts funds, mm-hmm. is some extra funding came in in the last minute, say around May, saying that we were going to get that grant. And when I say we, I was a member of the subcommittees. Um, I was security co-chair that year. And number two is uh, the the um, co-chairs were supportive, and a group of artists had formed to fight back against Anita Bryant and John Briggs and the Briggs Initiative, and they were just hunkering for what to do to show their anger about what was going on in our attack, and we were under attack. The gay community was clearly under attack in 1977 and 78. And this group of artists called the Eureka Noe Valley Artist Coalition were looking for some way to fight back. Mm 
And so in 1977, they did a series of flags in the Civic Center for the 1977 parade, and then they reformed again, and the parade committee was so impressed with the work done in 77 that they reorganized under under the uh, Decorations Committee of the 1978 parade. So the Decorations Committee formed in about April of 1978, and at first they were going to um, – there was talk, and Gilbert uh, was a, a member of the of the Decorations Committee, that there might be bunting on the front or, you know, make a bunch of signs. And in the end, they decided on two flags mm-hmm. that would fly at UN Plaza. And um, so that's in the end. And then the Parade Committee, uh, through the two co-chairs, okayed around $1,000 to pay for supplies – and the, the group of artists, there was approximately 25 to 30 of them, did the physical work of making the two huge flags. They were 40 by 60. They were handmade, hand-stitched. They were enormous. There's very few existing pictures of them. That's part of the problem is pe- I think most people don't know how enormous they were. Do those original flags still exist somewhere? Uh, one, according or? to Gilbert, was parsed out to different pride committees around the uh, – around the, um, around the country and the the uh, second one that was had stars and stripes embossed on the center where the the normal stars and stripes that we lost in about 1979 or 80 we don't know where that flag disappeared to so and so the two flags were made actually by the decorations committee mm-hmm. of the 1978 and they were paid for by the parade committee with the appraisio or whatever that would be that extra funding that was coming in from the CAOs from the grants for the arts. In other words, the the, the parade had never funded flags before, sure. and it's not technically part of their, um, you know, their job description to do. But they decided that year to support the artists and to decorate and to fight back against Anita Bryant and John Briggs. And it, so it's a great story yeah. in itself about how the flags got made, and then. There was the group of 25 or 30 artists that were part of the Eureka Noe Valley slash um, decorations committee. And then they were made at the Gay Community Center at 330 Grove. And what ended up happening is as people were coming in to do volunteer work, they were sending they were set up to the third floor to help. So there was we think there was a larger group of around 70 to 100 people who might have helped for two or four or six hours. Several people had so much fun they'd come back. So there was this also larger group of volunteers, and it took literally thousands of hours to make these two flags by many, many people. People worked around the clock the last month to get them ready for the parade day. The Michelle Miao Show and our special Commonwealth program with John Zipperer will be right back after these messages. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. 
Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Right, when you when you kind of go online, I'm, we'll throw Wikipedia under the bus, kind of read, try to figure out, you know, okay, well, how did they decide what colors to use or the design and stuff like that? I mean, how did all that come about? That was f- from the committee itself. Y- it really was a discussions committee. And, yes, it really was a committee decision. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've done is decided to do a series of, of oral histories around the making of the flags. And so I've been doing both pre-oral histories and sit-down oral histories with the original group. There's around six people left yeah. of the 30 that are still alive. Sadly, um, almost all the artists died of AIDS. That's, that's why things kind of changed. That's one of the major factors is why one person was able to say what they say is because so many of the artists died. Yeah. Um, so going back to the design and the, the the tragedy of some of these artists who contributed passing away and not being able to, you know, have a voice, um, it, I read somewhere or there's a rumor somewhere, I mean, the idea that came from the original founder, Gilbert Baker, I'm going to put original founder in quotes because that's what it said in the article, uh, was that he was inspired by the design of a hippie flag, um, one that, uh, you know, I don't know, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, used to parade around with during the, the hippie era movement. I mean, as someone who had worked on the flag, did, did you did that ever come up that 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 that's was part of the inspiration of creating, you know, the seven colors that are included in the flag when, before we dropped off hot pink? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is a great color, by the way. Um uh, that's why I think it's important to to hear from the original artists themselves, and that's why I'm doing an oral history project mm-hmm. around that, is that, that they have some different stories about how the design came about. Um, and I think that um, I'm hoping that places like Wikipedia will, once that those stories come out and the artists get to speak for themselves, that then I think more of honesty around how things were designed and, you know, who did the actual designs will come out. Uh, it would be, I think it would be better for the artists to speak for themselves because they do have specific stories. And how will we be able to hear these artists? How will you um, be doing this enough? We're actually or? getting closer and closer to, to coming out publicly in terms of them. Um, and their stories. So I'm hoping that, that that'll come out um, maybe hopefully by this summer. That's what I'm really hoping, given that it's 40 years. Yeah. Um, so what I found from doing the both the pre-interviews and the sit-down interviews that was of interest is that now they know that I'm doing the oral history project. But when I started, 
um, I told him that I was doing a documentary about 330 Grove, which is true. I am doing a documentary about 330 Grove. And originally I was going to do just a little bit touching on the flags because of 330 Grove. I think 330 Grove was a really important gay community center that we had that got torn down for a parking lot. It's a really sad story. So I felt that that is a very relevant story to to now, and and people fought to save 330 Grove. But the flags were one of the many things that happened there that would have made that that space, that 330 Grove Gay Community Center, an instant landmark if it still existed. We can't landmark a parking lot now. So it's gone, um, and we can't save it. But Um, It was such an important building, and everyone remembered 330 Grove. So I set up the series of interviews. I knew how important that particular story was, so I did not tell them that I was interviewing them about the flag. I was specific that I was interviewing them because of 330 Grove, because I wanted to see if their stories matched. That was what was behind, and it was on purpose Mm -hmm. for me. I just wanted them to talk, tell me what their ideas were and their memories of the flags and making the flags going to 330 Grove. And what I found is of the six that I've interviewed so far, their stories are uncannily similar without any prompting from me. And I got a really different story than what's on Wikipedia. So there's no offense to Wikipedia. No. Oh, it's we, just we, that we their story Wikipedia. has That's not come out. <laughs> well, were any of them, when they got into talking about it and, and their involvement, were any of them upset that they hadn't received attention for their roles in it sadly yes yeah well we uh we're, we'll look forward to uh more of your covering it's of it's a great yeah. american story yeah just in itself including gilbert because right. gilbert was there right um but but it's a wonderful story of a group of artists coming together to fight back against anita bryant and john briggs and the proposition six and then the kind of the conflagration or something of Harvey Milk and George Moscone being in the mayor's office and the supervisor's office and them, they really helped the parade that year in terms of a lot of things because the parade bloomed. It it blossomed in this huge event and it was a little overwhelming about how many people were going to be coming to town. So their help that year was a big deal. What, what, there's the fascinating history of of how this was created and and the stuff that most people don't yet even know and won't know details on until your work comes out. But it's also fascinating to look at. So this was a flag created in San Francisco by this committee. How did it become a worldwide yeah. thing? I mean, it, it it ties together. We talk about uh, Anita Bryant. She was doing something in Florida trying to stop uh, an anti-discrimination law there in, I forget what city. Uh, Miami-Dade County. Miami-Dade County, thank you. Um, Briggs Amendment here in California. Um, The flag became something that people everywhere came to identify with, if they were LGBTQ, or that others would kind of start to see, oh, these are not separate groups of people. I mean, can you tell us a bit about how did it spread out of San Francisco? Not at first, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough. It took a while, you know, 79, 80, 81. There were people, including the artists, working on trying to get the word out there. And one of the things that both the 77 group of artists that made flags in Civic Center, that's, again, not well known, Mm -hmm. and a man named Tandy Ballou was the graphics coordinator for the 77 parade. In that year, they called it the graphics committee. Um, They put up flags in 77. 
again, not well known, sadly. And Tandy's story isn't well known. It will be, you know, now since he certainly deserves the credit. But it did not take off at first. And I even remember um, various cities, including down in L.A., Morris Kite put a lambda, took the uh, the uh, rainbow flag and put a lambda symbol in it, I think in white, embossed a white cotton lambda. And various cities took the rainbow flag and did different things with it. The artists always wanted it to go out into the world. Mm-hmm. That was their thing. They were very clear that they did not copyright it. They did not want to copyright it. Um, they wanted the the idea of the rainbow flag for the gay community. And they they also did have that idea. That was uh, So Gilbert's kind of worked off of their ideas, too. It really did come out of a spontaneous, we want this to go out into the country. We want this for other people um, idea. But it didn't take off at first. And it did take a lot of work. And Gilbert does deserve credit for helping to get the word out there about that and start sharing it. The other artists did, too. Part of it, part of the story, though, again, sadly, is that by 81, 82, 83, some of the artists were already getting sick. Mm -hmm. And because they were part of a collective, most of that collective, instead of helping to work on the flags, worked on keeping the artists alive. So it's it's a real story about the AIDS pandemic, too. But but hard work both by the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Committee of the people that were part of that, because we kept and I was active on the committee for many years, kept working on getting the the story of the flags out there and um, a founding of Enterprise. We talked about the flags at Enterprise. Uh, I was at the first three years of Enterprise, 82, 83, 85. Um, Inter- now it's Enterprise, but then it was the American Association of Pride Parades or something. Um so we talked about the flag and how it could be used, that it wasn't just a San Francisco thing. Mm-hmm. So word eventually got out there. I think the big key was the flag in Key West. That was a big deal. And then the big flag that Gilbert did in New York for Stonewall. Those, I think, really helped it. And what is so cool is how it's used now internationally. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking that. I mean, I just, it, it is so amazing. Yeah, and, and to me, like to see that guy David in Uganda you know, holding a flag. I mean, all these places where, you know, we take for granted that we can hold a flag, but other places in other countries to hold a rainbow flag is very scary and very brave and revolutionary. And so I really think that here in San Francisco, we should support those places that want to carry a flag. It's interesting. This story now is, uh, and, and because of you and the other contributors, but it's taken nearly 50 years, I should say 47, 48 years, um, to have a discussion about the history of the LGBTQ flag and then acknowledge that, you know, in the 47 years, it's become an iconic symbol for the community or the official symbol. What are your thoughts about uh, the discussions or the idea of changing the flag up to include, you know, the queer people of color community and adding more colors or redesigning the actual flag? Mm-hmm. I'll speak a little bit for the artists. Um, I personally don't care. I think it's great because, again, it was made to be out there in the world. And that that our, most artists that do design, you know, are into, hey, take it, you know, that, that do design that give it to others. Say, hey, do what you want. Um, in, in talking to and listening to and reading some of the emails from some of the original artists, some of them are behind the changes and and all the things that it's going to. And then there's several others that really feel that it should stay 
the, the, the design, the original design, and keep it there and don't mess with it. So the artists themselves are mixed on it. Um, I personally am open to whatever our community wants to do because it's always things are always evolving in our community. Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, we'll be hearing these stories when your your work comes out. Do they want to have a higher profile? Will we? Will they be kind of putting themselves out more beyond beyond? Uh, mm-hmm. However, you. I think that they will be. Yeah, yeah I think that they they hope that their story can be become public and the story of the decorations committee. So we'll look forward to that. We'll look forward to that. The Michelle Meow Show and our special Commonwealth program with John Zipperer will be right back after these messages. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. We're going to take some time to uh, open up for questions in just a little bit. Uh, we're spending the entire hour with Glenn, so we're very, very lucky. I want to move on now to the history of, of LGBTQ in San Francisco. I mean, a lot of people think that, well, there's two, I, I hear a lot of things when uh, people talk about the history of San Francisco. Some of it is applied by whatever bars are left, right? Oh, I remember that bar and that, you know, or when Pride started in San Francisco, um, or uh, tragically when Harvey Milk was assassinated or when, you know, during the Harvey Milk time. But I want to focus or, or use your time to talk about, you know, pieces of San Francisco LGBTQ history that we might not know about. So I'm going to ask a very general question and go from a, a story that you might be super passionate about, uh, that you like to tell, uh, and go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's quite a bit of great scholarship done by it, and luckily there's a whole lot of up-and-coming and, coming and ex- existing, doing good work for many years 
LGBT historians, both that are straight and gay. There's there's LGBT historians who are straight, who are studying LGBT history. So there's a lot of great scholarship, great books, good articles, good journals now going on um, versus 10, 20 years ago. There just really wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the, the greatest stories is that is that there's two great archives here in San Francisco that do have a lot of the history going way back all the way to the gold rush days. There is, was clearly an LGBT presence during the gold rush. Tell us and I haven't done, I I haven't (laughs) done a lot of scholarship on that, but there was clearly a lot of performers um, because this was a performing town. Mm -hmm. And we all know how much LGBT folks like to perform (laughs) in various ways and functions. But there were clearly women who were dressing as men and performing as men, but really lived as men. There were men living as women and and clearly performing as women. And they almost always lived with same-sex partners in the housing that we've been able to track down by, you know, looking at directories and understanding and articles written. So I think clearly all the way back to the the gold rush, um, there was – there was LGBT, not identity, but the, and I'm sure that we figured out ways to find each other. We always have over the years and always will, no matter where we are, uh, to figure that out. But even going back to the native Californians, there's been some scholarship on native Californians who were here many, many thousands of years before us, that there might have been native Californians that lived openly as gay folks. So that scholarship is great too, both across the country and specifically here in California, that there might've been some LGBT, uh, Q Indians, uh, native Californians of native, of native descent. Um, gold rush stories are great, especially I of course, like the women who dressed as men and got to live these great lives because as we all know that women didn't have a lot of opportunities during the gold rush. But if a woman was male enough looking and and strong enough, she could live as a he and, you know, work in a store or go out to the minefields and gold fields and make money like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And there are several stories of men, uh, of women who were not discovered until after they passed that they actually had lived their whole lives as men. So those are some of my favorite stories. And um, there is one story that's going to be coming out about the stagecoach driver. I can't remember her name. Was it a Wells Fargo stagecoach? Uh, I think it might have been, but she, <laughs> she, she lived openly. Yes, Wells Fargo. Could have been. Um, uh, she lived openly as a man and... Uh, you know, had a great life um, mm-hmm. and was a stagecoach driver. So more of those stories are going to come out. In terms of more recent, um, one of my favorite stories that that I'm not doing an oral history around yet, but I'm I'm very interested is the Zaps. And I was mentioning to Michelle, uh, the Zaps were done in the late '60s and early '70s. Does anyone know what Zaps are? Ever heard of a Zap? Zaps are kind of like a what we now. Think of a flash mob where a group of people might kind of come together, but they were planned and they were smaller and the zaps were started around 68, 69. So some of them might even be pre Stonewall Mm -hmm. because a lot of this organizing and there was a huge, great scholarship around pre Stonewall organizing and, and all the things that our community was doing. The zaps were organized by small groups of LGBT folks in different cities when the conventions would meet for the people that did lobotomies and electric shock therapy. And for many years, 
there was a separate uh, conventions and separate identities of these type of psychiatrists and workers that did the lobotomies and did the electric shock. And by far, as you know, we were had that done to us in large numbers. Now, w- whether, you know, if there was a particular, say there was 50 doctors, of those 50 doctors, we don't know if they predominantly just did LGBT people, but that was a large part of their practice, was parents and friends and uncles and aunts who were able to get their, the people who had come out or they'd found out or whatever, they'd been, you know, uh, arrested by the police, they would then have to go to a hospital and get either electric shock or a lobotomy for being gay. So the zaps were a big deal because they started going to these conventions and saying, we don't want lobotomies anymore. We're okay. We are fine. We don't need electric shock. And it was a big deal. And they directly confronted the doctors Mm -hmm. at these conventions and at these places where the doctors that were doing that kind of work, the doctors and the workers and the hospitals and the clinics, and they confronted them. And I think that has a lot to do with the overturning of us being um, mentally deficient in the DSM in 1973. And it's a great story that, again, not that many people know about. And those zaps were so influential in in letting those doctors know that we weren't going to put up with it. And, and they did picketing. And the zaps were actually where they went to a convention and they would they would dress like the doctors. They would pretend that they were the doctors. They would sit all around. And then when a doctor who was particularly anti-gay or well-known for, for having a lot of, quote-unquote, gay patients, they would all start standing up and confronting him. And it was usually a him, um, not always, but usually a him, and just start barraging him with, we are gay, we are proud, and you can't do this to us anymore. Wow. And it, it so changed in those few years of all that work, started a dialogue. And other doctors who maybe were sympathetic started listening. And the listening of those doctors is what ended up changing the DSM in 1973. So it's a great story. What archive uh, footage or or any photos, anything um, about the Zaps is available? Uh, The one has quite a bit down in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, the probably the San Francisco History Center on the sixth floor of the San Francisco Public Library might have some good stuff. I think the GOBT Historical Society here in San Francisco also has some pictures and and probably has some writings. Um, there's a great story about the um, homosexual doctor who came out. Um, I think that was 1972. I'm trying to remember at one of the conventions where he put a Nixon mask on because he couldn't come out as himself. And he talked about being gay and he really called the doctors on a lot of us are gay and but we can't come out. And once we can start coming out, you'll know that many of your fellow friends that you think are straight are not. We're gay. It was such a big deal for this to occur. So I think a lot of the archives have it. Wow. It's a great story. So fascinating. So fascinating. We have uh, about 20 minutes or so left. Um, I was going to open up for a Q&A unless, John, you want to? Well, I did. When did San Francisco become, for lack of a better term, a gay mecca? You know, I identified with a place where, you know, if people were running away, they thought of San Francisco. And why San Francisco? Why didn't that be Los Angeles with the entertainment industry and, you know, uh, lots of space and all this? Any sense of when that actually happened? Well, it's actually a West Coast story. Mm -hmm. It's a whole West Coast 
And I think that there's a couple things that we can look at. One is World War II. Because there were so many uh, uh, men and women going through on the ships. Mm-hmm. And what ended up, and Alan Baraby did wonderful scholarship, and there's some good books by him out um, before he passed, about all the people coming through that would go off to war, and they would uh, get to stay for a few days in Los Angeles, Long Beach, Sacramento, um, San Francisco, before they would uh, debark uh, for wherever they were going within the Pacific region. And word started getting out about what was already existing here. And I think that the bohemian lifestyle that we had in San Francisco of more of a free-all versus Los Angeles was very Midwestern, very uptight, uh, very white-centric, and, and not bohemian, and very upstanding. And the, the police that they had, the uh, supervisors and the county people that they had, it was very white, very Midwestern identified. So it was a really different um, you know, vibe within the city versus San Francisco was much more open and did have an active bar scene mm-hmm. and an active social scene. So when people came back, there's a story after story and Alan does great work on documenting it is that they would come home, go through San Francisco or Los Angeles or Long Beach or wherever. And then they'd go right back to Kentucky or Nebraska or Illinois, where they were from, pack their bags and be back here in two weeks. Over and over and over again, this is where they wanted to be. And so our numbers just really spiked after World War II. Now, we were already a thriving queer community on the West Coast. We really had been um, for many, many years. And and that's, you know, just I think people kind of gravitated towards where they'd heard that there were other people like us. It really was, you know, like us. And it it worked because the numbers grew steadily. I could sit here for hours and listen to Glenn and your stories. So thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take some time to open up uh, for Q&A or or questions from the audience if you would like to join us. We've got a question here in the back. Hi, my name is Joanna. Um, First of all, this has been fascinating. And I'm reminded those that like if we don't study our history, we're bound to repeat it. And... um, so thank you for enlightening us. And I really look forward to all of your work coming out and being available to everybody. My question, I'm a late bloomer. I waited till I was 43 to figure out my authentic identity. Awesome. Though. And it sort of has paralleled some of what's going on that has me kind of worried about our past, the progress we've made and the reality that we're headed into with the current administration. And I would love to hear from you based on what you know of our history What's your outlook looking forward? That's a great question. Yeah, excellent question. Thank you. Well, just one thing to say is, is that talking to folks that are in their 70s and 80s, some of whom have had lobotomies or, or electric shock or been threatened with it by their families, and then now seeing the changes for folks that are older than us, it's amazing to see the changes to today or, or to a year ago. Um, but post-Trump, um, you know, I think a lot of us had our hopes up when he said, I'm going to leave the gays alone. I'm going to leave the gays alone. I don't know if you remember early on, he kind of said that. But I think uh, getting Pence on as vice president um, kind of like took some of the veneer off of that one. And then, you know, as you know, it's just been horrible for us for the for the last year. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to move past Trump when he gets past being president and we can kind of pick it back up 
um, wherever that is. So I'm really, I think we need to focus on getting folks like him out of there and stand up for ourselves because we really are still under attack. The religious freedom acts that people are getting away with um, are really going to put us back into a box or potentially put us into camps or tell us that we have to go back into the closet. And I'm very scared about that. And I think we all should be. Um, so religious freedom is really a guise, I think, for anti-gay, anti-Muslim, anti-Hispanic. Um, I'm just very concerned about that. So I hope that we will continue to fight because I don't think we should rest on our laurels. And I think we need to keep fighting. And even though a lot of the folks that I hang out with who are in their 70s and 80s because I'm doing their oral histories, they're kind of tired and ready to pass on the baton. I hope that young people coming up will continue to fight because I don't think there's anything to rest on right now. I, I, I would add. I hope, I, does that answer, Joanna? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think also a lot of those folks in their 70s and 80s, if not, one of the messages a lot of them could pass on is that there will be a post-Trump. Yes. You know, they, they were through Nixon. They were through Reagan. They were through the AIDS crisis and all of that. Um, I wanted to add to that, um, much like our history, you know, there, I find that there are a lot of voices from the more marginalized communities that are missing, missing in terms of the storytelling that we find in, in mainstream media today. And a lot of those members are from the transgender community. So mm-hmm. even when they tried to make an epic movie about Stonewall, you know, they left out. Oh, my even, gosh. Um, the leave uh, out Marsha P. Horrendous. Johnson yeah. and, and the true story of Marsha P. Johnson. And Terrible. So to add to, to that question, I think we have the uh, opportunity to really come together and unify. And we have to understand just by looking at our history that we haven't been so we've been great at it, I think, during crisis. Right. And we are in crisis mode. Right. I think we need to be in crisis mode right now. But 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 get better at that unifying voice that we are we are under attack. Mm-hmm. I think there's such strength in our umbrella, and I just wish that you know, or I hope that our umbrella will continue to be that there's strength in the umbrella to fight what we're up against. That we should be inclusive of everyone in that umbrella, um, no matter what they are, or where they come from. That we should be under that umbrella and all fight together. So yeah, very much so. Thank you. Do we have another question? Hi. Uh, you know, the things that you've brought up today are just so interesting and I'm learning so much. Um, so I guess my question kind of tacks on to our previous speaker, Joanna, about, uh, you know, moving forward, how we engage the younger audience. So um, I guess I have two questions, actually. My first question is, how do we get younger people engaged in the LGBTQ plus movement and how do we get their voices heard? And then my other question is, how do we support these history projects and how do we move forward and encourage these arts and everything else that goes along with that? Thank you. Yeah, good questions. I think for uh, one of the main things for folks like us that are looking back on history is to try to make that history authentic and, and realize the context of the time, but make it relevant make it engaging so that young people will feel that it's of interest to them. And so that's one of the things that I've really tried to do is not just talk about the dry things or keep everything so dry, but to be engaging. And so I do do a lot of presentations at youth summits and things like that. And a lot of us are doing that kind of work to engage students and make our history feel relevant and topical of the time. 
And so that's one of the main things that I think is really up to us as historians to make that history relevant so that it, it does seem important to young people. And, and then to try to get them engaged just in engaging in life right now. And it is so important, whether it's voting, you know, or signing up to vote or walking precincts or helping with a particular candidate or just fighting back in general. Um, I, I wish we had more LGBT folks that were speaking up and folks like Harvey Milk and um, uh, Sally, his co-chair, Sally. Oh, God, her last name is is um, escaping me. The two that went around the state in 1978 speaking out against the Briggs Initiative, you know, one male, one female. It was so well organized, and they, they really made a big difference in 1978 speaking out against um, the Briggs Initiative. So I, I do wish that we had more LGBT folks speaking up um, and providing a voice because it just feels like the last few years we've been kind of silent and under attack and kind of on the defensive and and kind of reacting as a defense, but not taking offense. And that was one of the things, again, in 1978 that we did in some of our other fights. Um, with the AIDS pandemic, we were on the defensive because we were sick and dying, and it was overwhelming. Just the numbers, the, how sick people got. So it was a little hard. But other times we fought back and been on the offensive. So I'm hoping that that folks that some other folks might take some leadership positions and get involved. And I'm I'm really hoping that that might come from young people. I'm really encouraged by the dreamers. I think the dreamers standing up for themselves, being active, uh, getting engaged, going to their congressional, going to their state offices, asking for support, demanding support. I, I think what the dreamers are doing is very exciting and. I wish that LGBT folks would do more like the Dreamers right now. One thing that has uh, certainly changed over time, I would think, is the the amount of support from non the non LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um, Allies have been wonderful. Yeah. Do are they a, a specific audience that you're you're trying to reach, or or do you think? Uh, or are you when you present these histories are do you have in mind reaching lgbtq audiences or non-lgbtq audiences who may not who may not even understand some of the fundamentals of what what you're talking about or both i mean well again in our history in our lgbt history and again because i mostly study california history so i can't really speak across the country our community has really gotten ahead in so many ways over the years because of our allies and if it weren't for our allies, I think that we would be in a different position. And a couple come to mind. One is um, Saul, I can't remember his last name, the guy that owned the Black Cat uh, bar down oh. in Montgomery, the Black Cat bar, the real Black Cat. I thought, I thought you were talking about uh, Saul who owned a Black Cat. So. <laughs> no, the Black <laughs> yeah, Cat. Gotcha. I can't remember his last name. Um, he kept taking the SFPD to court over and over again, year after year, to try to keep that bar open because he openly served drinks to openly LGBT people. You know, at that time, it was risky to have a liquor license and serve drinks to LGBT people. Um, so he was an ally. He was st- straight. So, again, we've just had these great allies over the years. We had a lot of allies again in 1978 and the Briggs Initiative. Um, you know, say that there's, even if you take a wild guess at 10 or 12 percent 
of California being LGBT identified and voting against the Briggs Initiative, we still won. I think it was around 60-40. I think it was 58-42. Well, that meant that well over 50% of the people that voted against it were straight, were were heterosexual. So in 78, we collaborated with all kinds of groups to say, okay, well, we're gay. But we want you to vote for us on this anti-gay bill. And it worked. Explain for those who don't know what the Briggs Initiative was. What what was the the core of it? Yeah. It was a takeoff on what was happening in Florida Mm -hmm. with Anita Bryant. And also she was starting to steamroll across the country doing these anti-gay initiatives. In California, a gentleman from Orange County, Fullerton, named John Briggs, got an initiative on the ballot Uh, called the Briggs Initiative or Proposition 6, it qualified for the ballot to, quote-unquote, fire all gay teachers and all teachers that acknowledged that gay people existed or acknowledged that if they were even straight but their brother or sister was gay or they had an aunt and uncle that was gay. If anyone ever mentioned gay in the classroom or anything to do with gay, they got immediately fired. And it was a very anti-gay initiative, and it was built on Anita Bryant's work uh, in Florida, and he brought it here. And luckily, after a very hard-fought campaign for a year, we defeated it. But again, with lots of allies. Do we know what ever happened to Mr. Briggs? Uh, He's retired and living in Arizona. (laughs) And quite bitter, apparently. (laughs) Really? Yes, because he thought that he would win. And he thought that by winning, he might get into the governor's office. And that it would be a way for him to get into the governor's office. And he was soundly defeated and uh, never rose again to that level. It was Saul Stuman, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Just a very important good. straight ally in our history. Mm-hmm. I have an iPad. Standing up to the SFPD <laughs> yeah. so I, and I the mean, alcohol board. Um, on that note, I mean, we have 10 minutes left. And I, I want to ask a very serious question as we're talking about this because I don't want to leave feeling like this administration is not defeatable. I don't want to leave, uh, you know, feeling like we, we can do this. I mean, we talk about, you know, getting the allies involved and the community, and then I talk about being under attack, especially with religious freedom bills. I mean, we're hearing every day and these different types of things that they're trying to do to limit our freedoms, whether it's, uh, you know, um, being able to use public restrooms uh, or <laughs> getting married and the services that we would need to, to do that, to carry out that, um, you know, celebration what do we need to do? I, I think that prior to Trump, and we were really good at going on CNN, going on MSNBC as, you know, um, uh, you know, what do they call them? The talking heads that kind of defeat these religious leaders who, are, who say uh, crazy things like LGBTQ people shouldn't exist or make bad parents. I haven't seen much of that like you were talking about. Um, or, or, or are we just really stressed out? What are your thoughts? You know, I don't know why some of our leaders aren't you know, jumping up to the forefront. That part, I, I don't know. But I think that you're right, that, that a lot of this is defeatable a, in terms of what's going on, or at least standing up again, like the dreamers are, at least, you know, they're making their case be known. I'm feeling like we're almost like back in the closet, because I'm not feeling that we're making our case be known. And to me, one of the most important things that I'm not hearing conversations about, even on the radio coming up this morning, 
um, NPR and some of the other radio stations were talking about some of the new things that they're trying to institute in the health and human services, and that it was specifically written as anti-gay, right? That they're that they're saying that if you don't want to do medical procedures or help a, a an LGBT person and specifically a transgender person in an emergency room or something, that you can say, well, it's against my religion. But I, I'm not hearing people talk about that's exactly what the Nazis did in the 30s, that they started picking on one group, but then they ended up spreading it over many groups. And that people aren't saying, well, look, okay, if you let them get away with attacking transgender people and saying, okay, you can't do a trans, you know, you can't take care of a transgender person in a, in a hospital setting, are they then going to say they can't do it for somebody who's Jewish? Are they going to say they can't do it for somebody who's Muslim? Are they going to say they can't do it for somebody who's from Pakistan? You know, where, where do you start and, and, or stop? And that, I'm not hearing that kind of conversation of this feels just like Germany in the 30s. And with groups saying it's okay to start picking on one group. So I find it very frightening. And I'm really hoping some of our leaders will start standing up. It's very frightening. One thought I had was that maybe we're we're quiet in the media, but maybe we're active in the courtrooms. I mean, that that was yeah. my my th- sorry to interrupt. I, that was my thinking too. Is is when it comes to cases where um, either it's a law that has been implemented or regulations that have actually gotten enacted, that that's when you have the lawyers. And and I think we've found lawyers have been at the forefront of taking on the Trump administration. We saw that with the uh, the uh, immigration ban. You know that is. And also the transgender military. The trans, yeah, but it, it, when you had lawyers, weren't immigrants, weren't even immigration lawyers, but they were head, they were lawyers, and they were heading to the airports and you know were helping people. Um, they we might be like Pakistan in that sense. It was the lawyers who were standing up and saying, "Hold on, there's a law here," you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, they many of them I think will find are are indeed. Uh, straight allies and as well as LGBTQ folks as well. So I think the the big answer to that is while our leaders are fighting in the courts, that's why it's important to engage youth, our communities, our pastors, our you know friends and our families to continue the momentum of you know social acceptance and 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 also fighting for for our rights too as we fight mm-hmm. for for their rights. I think that's that's how we engage. Everyone, including Mm -hmm. um, young people. Well, Glenn, this has been so incredible just to sit here and listen to you. And, uh, you know, you're bringing up the Zap stories. I was like, man, so many millennials would be so sad to know that they did not create the, the hashtag or the trend. Um, but to, <laughs> but then to, <laughs> to follow up on what a fantastic story that is in our history. How can uh, we all walk out of here and get a hold of you if we want to hear more stories or, or to follow up on the um, – the pride flag history. Yeah. Um, I'm currently doing two projects. Um, they both have websites. One is impact stories and that's my oral history project is called impact stories and I'm easy to reach on the web via impact stories and that's my oral history project. And then I'm also doing a kind of a documentary project called dancers we lost. And that also has a presence on the internet and that's documenting the lives of dancers that were lost to HIV AIDS. And I feel like as an historian that 
that that's an important contribution to document the lives of West Coast dancers. There was a great project on the East Coast that did wonderful work documenting the lives of dancers on the East Coast. So we followed their lead, and we're concentrating on dancers that danced on the West Coast. And many wonderful stories about dancers that were lost to HIV-AIDS early or even late and their contributions and how the dance community got wiped out. Well, I'm, I'm glad your your second career was in such a fascinating field because I'm I, loving it. I love stories. I love history. I love finding out how things started and became what they became. So thank you for everything you're doing. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Glenn McElhaney, everyone. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, Guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com.